That's Luke chapter 22, verse 31 to 34. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. This is God's word. I love sport. I love the outdoors. I love water. But I am a horrific fisherman. All right. One time I really uh, wanted to get into it. I was younger, but I was living in, uh, unfortunately, in Los Angeles or near Los Angeles. And maybe you've seen their river. <laughs> All right. Uh, sea life and aquatic fishing is not exactly the strong point of the Los Angeles area. All right. You just, you just don't see a lot there. It's, it, this, you know, the L.A. River Basin is better used as an emergency landing strip than it is to catch fish. And but, but while older and a parent and living in Florida, my oldest son fell in love with fishing, or to be more honest, the idea of fishing, since his old man had not yet worked up the confidence to take him. So I asked a couple of uh, co- experienced college students from our church college ministry if they would take us out on a boat. So we packed some food, some sunscreen, some Dramamine, the whole bit, and we were on our way. All right, and we got out there, and when you know it, on a spring day in Florida, 43 degrees with rain pelting at us sideways. Despite all this, Mason, our oldest son, he he caught a fish. All right, great moment. The problem was it was really the fish that caught his rod, which we were never to see again. (laughs) Mason disappearing in the rain. Uh, but on the way in, after this, this sort of difficult experience, we were kind of cold, tired, a little pruney. We saw this guy standing in the shallow waters, and he's a middle-aged guy, goatee, blue blocker sunglasses, a Dwayne Wade Miami Heat jersey, complete with cut-off corduroy shorts. And honestly, you know what he looked? He looked like the dude from The Big Lebowski. You ever seen that movie? That's what he looked like, all right? This is... This guy is kind of vision. And I asked about it. I said, hey, you know, it's this guy. And now oh, he's here every time we come out. So, well, you know, you ever talk to him? And the guys I was with just said, not really. And so, of course, we had to talk to him. Right? So I, we introduce ourselves. Um, we ask what he's doing. And he just says, oh, just fishing like every day. But you've got to realize in his hand was just a, just a piece of rope kind of dangling into the water. So it was a little odd, as he said he was fishing, and so we asked, you know, do you caught anything? Nope. Do you ever catch anything? And he looked offended when we asked him this question, but partly because the secret was out, that uh, he had been found out, he, you know, not really caught anything. And so he just turns to us, he says something interesting, I never forget this, he just says, I want to share with you boys the keys to a successful fishing experience. <laughs> We're like, okay, this should be fun, let's, let's hear it. Then number one, don't try anything fancy or new. Don't do it. It's just not good. Number two, it's best to cast a big net for fish and set traps for crabs and just hope you catch something. That's all you got to do. Big net, 
set some traps. Hope you catch something. That was the second piece. The third piece of advice was just stay in the shallow end. I never bothered to get those, you know, he looked at his shorts and said, I never bothered to get those fishing waders. So instead he got corduroy shorts, right? And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's just too much work. Really nice guy, actually. But, but I think what he shared was really in a pretty abysmal fishing strategy, right? It's pretty sad. And I later realized that it also represents an abysmal but common prayer strategy for our lives. This morning, however, through the prayer strategy of Jesus here in Luke 22, we're going to learn how to combat this kind of prayer. Prayer that's tentative, right? Don't try anything fancy or new. Something that other people around could see as crazy. Prayer that's general. You cast a wide net and just hope you catch something for your prayers. Prayer that's shallow. It stays in the shallow waters, right? You ask for little and you receive little. So we're going to talk about combating that kind of prayer this morning. So first, we need to pray in a way that's discerning in the spirit, not tentative in the flesh. Let's see what Jesus says here. His word is most powerful. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he may sift you like wheat. Imagine a sieve, a colander, back then it would have been a sieve, and this process of sifting out the chaff and just getting the wheat to have. Satan demanded to have you. First of all, I want to ask a question. What's really going on in this scene? Right? Uh, hey, guys, Jesus is coming to his disciples saying, guys, you know, Satan told me something this morning. I, well, well, what, that, first of all, it's kind of alarming. Like, what is this? Is, you know, just do Jesus and Satan have a weekly conference call? <laughs> do you go out for coffee when no one's looking? Do you, does Satan, like, have to share with you his Excel spreadsheet of future temptations that he's going to do, and you just exchange information? This is kind of strange, right? It's very unique. You don't see this in the Gospels anywhere except for here where there's this sort of like, yeah, Satan told me something. Satan has said something. But what's going on here is that two powerful, though not equal, spiritual forces have collided. Earlier in Luke's Gospel, there's this beautiful moment, beautiful moment, an important moment when God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, descends on Jesus, it says, in bodily form, like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. That's Luke 3.22. What happens immediately after that? So the Holy Spirit comes down, anoints Jesus for his ministry. What happens immediately after? Chapter 4. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Not a coincidence we see this sequence here, because where the Holy Spirit is present, evil comes out of the woodwork. All right? Not that it wasn't there before, but it now stands in bold relief, like, like a three-dimensional part of some works of art. Right, that stand in relief. They just come out a little bit. Why does that matter to us? Because the Holy Spirit comes to make a home inside all who trust Jesus. 
if you have trusted your life to Christ or you're interested in that, you get to have God living inside you, the Holy Spirit, the active, on-earth presence of third member of the Trinity, God, active today. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 14-15 this, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're like folly to him. They're foolishness. They're, they're, they're a little bit weird, a little bit crazy. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but he is judged by no one. And so the blessing of God living inside you, one of the blessings, is that you judge, you discern what is spiritual more readily. But if you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, but you say, I don't, I don't, I don't find this collision with evil. I, I rarely have ever sensed its opposition. Perhaps it's because you're not praying anything worth opposing. Hear that? It's hard to hear, but maybe we're not praying something that needs to be opposed. So what does this look like to discern what is spiritual? I can't quantify this for you. There's no, there's no formula. Only, only I can say that if you call upon the Holy Spirit's help, His guidance, you might encounter things like a heaviness in someone. Or when you walk into a place, there's just this palpable heaviness. Like I remember uh, visiting New Orleans, Louisiana, and the States a few times for missions work after uh, Hurricane Katrina. And visiting there, there was a, there's a spiritual heaviness. And you get around Bourbon Street... You know, you combine such forces as debauchery and voodoo. That is a wicked, powerful force, right, of evil. I mean, it, it, it goes to work, and you can sense it. You have to pray against it. You might also experience an urge to silently pray for someone unusual or pray in unusual circumstances. By someone unusual, I don't mean like you're going to have a ministry to weirdos and freaks. I don't mean that so much, all right? Other than you're going to pray for someone you wouldn't have expected to pray for. All right, should clarify that. But in usual circumstances as well, maybe it's in a classroom or meeting room kind of setting. Maybe it's on an airplane or at a luncheon. And you, and you just feel like, whoa. I feel God's presence saying to pray for someone, just, just silently. I have a friend who travels for his work, and he, he basically makes presentations mostly in North America. And, it, and this happens to him all the time. He gets these urges to silently pray for people. And sometimes that leads him to even uh, approach people occasionally. And, and God has used that to, to have people, when he approaches them, they're like ready to ask questions about Jesus. And some have even come to trust Christ. But he admits sometimes it's annoying. Come on, spirits. <laughs> give, me, give me a day off. Right? But what a privilege to silently pray for people. This is discernment, spiritual discernment at work. Something else about spiritual discernment. Sometimes it's all spiritual. Sometimes it's spiritually discerning obvious circumstances. That's what we see actually going on here. Now, when you read a verse in the Bible, you just read one verse. Before you make it and say that it's your life verse and begin to claim it as God's promise for unpaid electric bills, before you start doing that and just take a verse that this is my promise for life, it's important to read it in context, to read up and read down. 
So you understand, hey, here's what's really going on and why it's being said, where it's being said, who's saying it. So let's do that here this morning. If you have your Bibles open, read up a little bit. Read before what happens in this encounter with Jesus praying for his disciples. If you go all the way up to verse 24, Luke says this, that a dispute also arose among the disciples as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. All right? You can imagine. Here's the, here's the conversation. Who is the greatest? I, I, I don't know what that, how that started. How do you start that kind of conversation? I don't know how you break the ice with that, but this conversation happened where they were comparing each other. Who's the greatest among us? Come on. Right? We know it's not Thomas. Right? I mean, that guy doesn't believe anything. Right? So, so they're having this dispute. This absolutely matters to the passage we're reading. Whenever there is a team who has aimed to pursue Jesus that begins to, one, quarrel, and two, concerns themselves with power, titles, and getting credit, it's more than a personality conflict, friends. When that kind of thing's going on, when a team is aimed to pursue Jesus, there is satanic influence at work. There's spiritual things going on at work beyond just well, they don't get along well. And what Jesus does, he simply takes note. He takes note of the obvious circumstances, spiritually discerns it. So first he positively addresses it here. And then in our passage, he notes the real dangers that the disciple are in. Satan's doing something, guys. Here. But sometimes circumstances are so heavy so heavy that, that you got to say, in the words of St. Optimus Prime, there's more than meets the eye. Right? Sometimes it's just, that's heretical, but more, it, there's more than meets the eye just than the circumstances. This past week in our church, listen to some circumstances going on in the body of Christ. Decisions to leave a spouse. Decision to give up on marriage. Uh, the experience of verbal abuse from a spouse. From, uh, manipulation. Uh, experience of struggles with addiction that manifest themselves, uh, a major car accident, multiple surgeries for internal damage. We got to pray for um, uh, Terry Howard, one of our sisters in crisis, last weekend, and a very bad car accident. She was in ICU for a while. Uh, saw her on Friday. She's recovering well and, and out of ICU, but uh, multiple surgeries. Please be praying for her. And just these heavy circumstances. And on top of all this, Katie and I, my wife and I, just had a week where we were in an absolute fog. We couldn't think straight. We were sort of paralyzed from prayer. Thankfully, a spiritually discerning friend of mine reminded me, bro, look what's going on. And you've been preaching from God's word on prayer. This is the greatest and most underused weapon against the enemy who wants all these people to not be prayed for. Right? That's what he, he wants people not to be prayed for. What was he doing? He was just spiritually discerning circumstances. And so we stopped to pray. So grateful he stopped to do that with me. So, spiritually discern. Don't be tentative in the flesh. Also, in prayer, get specific and not general. That's a lesson we can learn from Jesus here. He says in verse 32, But, so Satan wants to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. There's some really cool stuff in this verse going on. 
I want to share with you. In verse 31, Jesus uses the plural form of you twice. He's basically saying you all are humos in the Greek. Right, you see this in the Greek. He's basically saying you all are being sifted like one. Satan wants to sift you all like wheat. And then in verse 32, though, he gets specific with Simon Peter, using the singular form of you four times, su in the Greek. Right? And so he says in verse 32, I have prayed for you that your faith might not fail. So the, the idea is he's kind of talking, he's panning to the entire group as he's talking. And then when it comes to prayer, he looks at Simon Peter. He says, but I prayed for you, Simon. Right? Now, first of all, for anyone who struggles with pride as Peter did, there's a great lesson here on humility. All right? uh, Jesus will often remind us that we are part of a larger body, that things happening are not just about me. And he sort of does that in verse 31, right? It's about all of you. But simultaneously, Jesus will sometimes put us in situations where we must be humble enough to alone receive prayer. Imagine this. I was like, you all are being targeted. Simon, I'm praying for you. You're the weak one, right? I mean, you're the most vulnerable here. I mean, this is a humbling situation. That's a side note. That's not part of the sermon. That's free. All right. But Jesus, Jesus prays. What he does, he prays something specific for specific persons. He gets specific. I love this. With the exception of the final part of the high priestly prayer in John 17, where Jesus prays for future believers, Jesus rarely does these general, cover-all, cast-a-wide-net type of prayers. Let's get specific. This last week, I caught myself doing it again. I was praying for someone. I didn't want to press in. I didn't want to discern any deeper. I said, Lord, if it's your will, help in this way. All right, now let me stop here and, and before I go any further and say and remind us, the most important question you can ask in prayer, which we talked about before, is where do I stand with God? If you've trusted Christ, you are a son or daughter of a heavenly father. And however you approach him in prayer, he is delighted to have you. And so if you're praying sincerely at all, I want to encourage you, praise God. I, it's awesome. I cannot wait to see how God is going to use your prayers. But, same, uh, but again, as you grow, just as a son or daughter grows and, and is given more to handle and is more equipped and more is expected, right? In a good way. Well, there should be more expected. And so, as you grow in prayer, more is expected. So, having said all that, who started this whole, Lord, if it's your will thing? Ever been, if, you, if, you, if you've been a Christian for a little while, you've been around this. Lord, if it's your will. But I just want to point this out. <clears throat> it wasn't Jesus or any of the writers of the New Testament who started it. It's interesting. And I found this out myself. Two possible exceptions to this. I want to go through this with you real quick. Though I'd argue these are not exceptions. One is Luke twenty-two forty-two. So actually later in this chapter where Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but your will be done. The context here is Jesus knows in order to be obedient to his Father, he must take this cup, which is the cup of wrath, as Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah prophesied. 
cup of wrath for all mankind, the punishment that mankind deserves. He has to take it on him. So we're seeing here an intense emotional moment of humanity for Jesus. He agonizes as he's striving to obey the Father's will. He knows it's the Father's will, but he's struggling to accept it. In other words, this is not an instance of beginning a prayer unknowingly with, Lord, if it's your will, cause this to happen. This is just a sort of Psalms moment for, for Jesus. The other possible exception for those of you who memorize the New Testament, you know I know about this one too. James 4.15. James 4.15 says this. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. This is also not a prayer. This is simply acknowledging God in humility that you can't say for certain what you're going to do tomorrow. You can't say, I'm going to go meet someone for sure. Because we just don't know what's going to happen in our lives, what we're going to do next. In other words, what I'm saying is, as far as... New Testament goes. There is, no, not, there is no example of, Lord, if it's your will. It's interesting, isn't it? This is challenging to me. And, and, and for a number of reasons. First, okay, well, I'm trying to be humble. I don't want to assume what God says. Okay, granted. Secondly, I also get it. We're lazy. right? We, we, we don't want to put in the time to pray, to wait, to search our own hearts, and to discern what God might be saying we should pray. That's hard to do. I get it. That's hard to do. But there's one final thing, reason we, we, we go this direction. We don't want to be left disappointed. When we pray, I think a lot of times we have to give God the widest possible margin for error, right, so that he won't disappoint us. It's like we feel through our prayers that we must set up God to succeed. You know what I mean? So I'm going to pray with someone, but I'm, God, I'm going to set you up for success. That prayer is going to be real general. So if anything happens, you look good. You know what I mean? Now, I understand the, 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 the shadow side of this, the, the disappointment that does happen. And we'll talk more about disappointment and unanswered prayer in the next sermon, actually. But know this, in Jesus Christ, you have the freedom to fail. You know what I mean by that? You have the absolute freedom to fail. They'll fly on your face. It really means you have the freedom to succeed, right? One of the greatest blessings of trusting Jesus is, is, is the freedom from penalty of sin and slowly being freed from sin's power. But in this also, you get the freedom to take risks, faith risks. Okay, if you fail in what you pray and you're being specific, what's the worst that can happen? What's the, really the worst that can happen? Because God can't love you any less or any more. Think of it like the time where Jesus is walking on the water. You remember this? Jesus is walking on the water, and he asked Peter to stroll on out to him. Right? If Peter succeeds, man, he, he walks on water. It's pretty great. If he fails, Jesus grasps his hand and brings him to himself. And actually both happen, don't they, in that story, in that event. You know, Peter's walking along for a little while looking at Jesus, walking on water, and then... His eyes off Jesus, sinks. Jesus grasps him, draws him near to himself. This is as close as you can get to a win-win. Right? Either way you win, but to do so, you've got to take the first step. It's true for prayer. You're going to discern wrongly. You're going to pray big and then be humbled. You're going to ask specifically, sometimes with wrong motives, and you realize it later. 
And so Jesus still grasps you and draws you nearer to himself through it all. You see that? If you really think about it, the only way you really fail is through not trying. And that's more true for a relationship with Jesus than it is for anything else in the world. You've heard that phrase before, the only way you fail is by not trying. I don't know that's really true in other aspects, but it's true because of the freedom we have with Christ to take risks. That's awesome. When it comes to discernment and praying specifically in prayer, in my opinion, there's been no equal over the last millennium to a guy named George Mueller. Uh, Mueller lived in 19th century Bristol, England, where he preached in his local church every week for over six decades, but he's most famous for his work with orphans. Mueller, when he began his work with orphans, there were 3,000 orphans being cared for, but through, through him and his influence, his palpable influence, by the time he died, there were over 100,000 orphans being cared for in England. 3,000 to 100,000. What an impact this guy made. His contemporary said of him, though, what defined him is that he was a man who got things from God. His memoirs, which I was tempted to just bring out and read this morning as a sermon, they're so good. Better than what I could say, most likely. But his memoirs, his diaries are entitled A Million and a Half Answers to Prayer. So he named his own autobiography, basically. Because he just saw God work and his whole life as a prayer and answered to it. He was helped by the fact that he and his wife, from the very beginning, I mean, trying to start an orphanage, for goodness sakes, didn't tell anyone about their financial need. They coveted it. They weren't going to tell anyone about their financial needs. They just took God at his word that he would provide and they prayed specifically. And, and he, they would be on their last shilling. No food for the orphans for lunch. Someone would show up at the door. I mean, just amazing situations. One, another vivid example was in November 1857 when the boiler in their first orphanage had a severe leak. I mean, it was bad. And 300 children and infants seemed destined to spend an English winter with no heat. So what does Mueller do? He prays against the wind. And this guy, I mean, this time of year, the wind blows in Bristol from the cold north. If they were going to do repairs, they had to stop the fire. So, so the wind blows in from the cold north, and it had been doing so predictably for the last three weeks, three straight weeks. So he just prays for a south wind. Within 36 hours, a steady, warm, southerly breeze blows through the orphanage to the point where they can open their windows. I mean, this is when they just happen. What about us? We pray for wind to change. We get that specific. Do you pray that this would be the week where a coworker would come up to the desk of your spouse, invite him or her to lunch, and share Christ with them? Lord, I pray it's this week. You get that specific. Do you ask to be led to the exact right physician, who you might not only need, but they might need to hear Christ from you? Not just content yourself to ask around for the best doctor. These sorts of things, do we get specific? Specificity. Get specific, not general. Finally, pray big, not shallow. Pray big, not shallow. Jesus prays not that Peter will stay healthy, not that he won't suffer too much, not that, Lord, Please give Peter peace during this difficult time. Even though, even though Satan wants to have Peter, consume him. This is how we pray, right? Lord, give him peace. Give him comfort. 
that Jesus prays that his faith may not fail. That when he's turned to strengthen his brothers. In other words, Jesus prays big enough to fit in the deep end. He didn't ask Peter to stay afloat in the shallow end, doggy paddling in his swimmies, right? Just enough. I think a lot of times our prayers for ourselves and for others are often band-aids. Often band-aids. Like, Lord, help Mary get along with her parents while they're visiting. It's a good start, but it's a band-aid. Jesus, would you help my grandmother just feel better? Good start. It's a band-aid. Lord, help, help Jim and I, you know, get along better and stuff. Not bad. It's a Band-Aid, all right? It's a Band-Aid, you know. Oswald Chambers, and the great, his great devotional work, Most First Highest, said this way, what we must avoid in intercession is praying for someone to be simply patched up, like a Band-Aid, right? We must pray that the person, we must pray that person completely through into contact with the very life of God. Man, that's much bigger, right? The very life of God. Throw away those band-aids, friends. Get some surgery going here. Let me give you two ways to put this all together this morning. One, pray next level so that prayers. I don't have a great acronym for this, so you just have to remember next level so that prayers. I'll explain what I mean by this. When someone asks you for a band-aid, go to the next level. All right, by adding a so that to their prayer request. Let me give you an example. Someone asks you to pray that they have a good time and get along with their parents, like I just mentioned. So discern, be specific, and get big. Father, I pray for Mary to have a good time, to get along with her parents, so that she might have an opportunity to be honest about the things that hurt her, things that bother her, have genuine reconciliation and forgiveness, and so open a door for Jesus to be centered in that relationship. That's bringing them into the contact of the very life of God. Just add a so that. Jesus, help my grandmother feel better so that she might give thanks and praise to you and acknowledge that you are the healer of all things. You see that? Just add a so that. Here's the second thing you can do. Pray further forward. Successful faith isn't normally revealed through what we think of successes, but in responses trials and failures. The oddity of Jesus praying for Peter's faith to be strengthened is that in the next breath, what does he do? This is very intentional, folks. What does he do in the next breath? He says he'll fail. Look at this, verse 33 and 34. Peter said, and Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he does it to a teenage girl the last time. A teenage girl at a fire. This is remarkable and occurs only here in Luke where the promise of prayer goes further than the initial failure. He's going to fail. He's going to deny. Now imagine if Jesus just prayed this. Imagine if he just prayed for Peter not to deny him. What if he stopped there? What if he didn't pray further forward? We wouldn't have this moment of restoration by Jesus on the beach after the resurrection. He restores Peter. Gives Peter a chance to say, I love you, Lord. And Peter talks about feeding his sheep. And we probably wouldn't have had Peter volunteering to stand up at Pentecost and preach where thousands 
would come to know Christ. You probably would have Peter stand up to lead his fellow brothers and strengthen them, as Jesus asked him to do as the leader of the disciples and the early movement of the church. Jesus has foresight not to pray that Peter be flawless, not that he exercise perfect faith, but when he fails, that he'll respond, not relying on self, but on the forever forgiveness that only God can provide through Jesus. You see that? So for us, will you stop short praying for yourself or for someone to be a model Christian? Or will you pray further forward? That in so-called success or failure, that, that, that you would so humble yourself, so apologize, so mistrust your own heart, be so brutally honest, be so unrelying on your own wisdom that would result in a deeper dependence on Jesus. And nothing short of you and those around you coming into contact with the very life of God. Legend has it that golfer Arnold Palmer, famous golfer Arnold Palmer, once played a series of exhibition matches in Saudi Arabia. The king of Saudi Arabia was so impressed This is many years ago. So impressed that he proposed to give Palmer a gift. Palmer deferred humbly, saying, yeah, it's not really necessary, your highness. It was a privilege to be here and be invited. King replied, I would be deeply upset if you would not allow me the honor to give you a gift. So Palmer wisely thought about it for a moment and said, all right, how about a golf club? That would be, you know, that would be a nice little memento for my time here in your country. So the next day, delivered to Palmer's Hotel was the title, the deed to a golf club. All right? Thousands of acres, trees, lakes, fairways, greens, and a clubhouse. If you trust Jesus, if you trust Jesus, you are always in the presence of a king who encourages you to boldly approach his throne. Don't waste your requests on small, shallow things. Let's pray. Father, help us with this. This kind of obstacle in prayer, our, our prayer lives we know can get weak, they can get shallow, they can get limp, tentative, general. Father, encourage our hearts to discern, do the hard work of discernment. Encourage our hearts to be specific, step out in faith. Encourage our hearts to have the imagination and the foresight to pray big. Add on those so that pr- next level so that prayers and have the courage to pray further forward. Challenge us with it this week in Jesus' name.